0: All right, well, we are in Matthew 1, finally. Matthew 1. Did you get hurt rock climbing? You don't want me to ask in front of everybody? (laughs) I'll hear the story later. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and begin. A little bit of a preface. Uh, How many of you guys like genealogies? How many have uh, set out to, uh, you know, read through your Bible and then got hung up in numbers? yeah and thought you could do without that, um, I think I hear that uh, from almost everybody that starts you know reading through the Bible like everything was fine until I got to numbers. Uh, some people say until I got to the temple and it was this sacrifice for this small detail and that thing and so forth and but then the genealogies have a way of of um, yeah getting people messed up and uh, and you can make it, I mean, there are genealogies throughout uh, some of the historical narrative, and uh, but then when you get to the New Testament, that's the first thing that you hit, is a genealogy. When you get to Luke 3, uh, you get to another genealogy, and, uh, and you think that you're suffering some kind of penance for it. Uh, I don't want you guys to feel that way, especially when it comes to um, the genealogy of Christ, because uh, this particular genealogy, we can't overstate its importance. You understand? Uh, we do need this, um, especially uh, the Jew needs it in advance if he's going to consider Christ uh, for what uh, Christ is claiming himself to be. So uh, if, if Jesus is not actually related to some very specific people in the Old Testament, uh, he, he cannot be the one Uh, That fulfills God's God's promises to Abraham, to ethnic Israel, to David, uh, and then of course especially as Luke's gospel would communicate, uh, you can't be the the promise of God uh, to the rest of humanity from Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. So the genealogy of Jesus is is really important. We need uh, these things to clarify to authenticate. Um, But if Jesus actually is related to whom Matthew and Luke say he's related to. He could be. He could be the Messiah. He could be the Son of God. He could be the Savior of the world. And I I say could because, um, as you know, other people were related uh, to these same people that Jesus was related to, okay? Uh, So the genealogy itself is not sufficient uh, to verify all of those things. Uh, Joseph, for example, was related to all those people. But uh, he could not be the Messiah for other reasons. Okay? So the, the genealogy in itself is not sufficient. It's just absolutely uh, necessary. We have to begin here. And uh, if, we are to fo- if we are to establish the other necessary things, that's when we have to go into the historical narrative of Jesus' life. He must fulfill a multitude of Old Testament prophecy, if he is Messiah. Okay? He must teach particular things. He must perform miracles and ultimately he has to rise from the dead. Uh, when Paul to the Romans is uh, establishing Jesus's identity in his introduction there, he says this final piece of evidence uh, it's, he says it's regarding the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise, he cannot be any of the things that he claimed to be. So from his birth, actually from before his birth, and then his life, his death, his resurrection. And then actually he's going to put um, um, something really nice addition in the end to that. He's going to come back. And, uh, and every eye will see and will settle all the debates over history, won't he? He'll finish that up for us. So uh, when we consider the genealogy of Jesus, we need to understand that it's just the first part in a series of necessary proofs to authenticate his identity. Also, it's important uh, for the careful believing, the Bible-believing Jew, um, because without this particular document, he will dis- he will discard everything else. He must have this foundationally, because if he is not related, if Jesus is not related to the people that we're talking about, um, he just cannot be any of those things for the Jew. So, with that said, let's let's stand up, and I'll um, read. God's Word to you, I'm going to be reading Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the genealogy. As I told first service, I will probably botch some of the names. Uh, My Hebrew is uh, pretty rusty. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab, and Amminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abiah, and Abiah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, or Joam. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot uh, Shalchel. And Shalchel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud. And Abiud begot Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. And Zadok begot Achim. And Achim begot Eliab. Eliab begot Eleazar. And Eleazar begot Mathan or Matan. And Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Notice that separation between Joseph and Jesus. Not the biological father, just the legal. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, thank you that um, You've, you've provided yourself witness, especially as it's valuable to the Jew. Um, you promised to redeem the Jew, those that would repent and trust in you. But you've accommodated them, Lord, by providing this legal document to verify, to authenticate Jesus's roots. And um, so, Lord, I pray that by use of it, that you would inform us, you would encourage us, and, Lord, that we would learn to distrust you more. So thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Go ahead and return with me to verse one, if you would. Um, I did get a request from a friend. He said, I really like it when you put the verse up there because as I'm tending to my children during service, I can lose track and not know where I'm supposed to be. And I can just look up, and there it is. So by doing this, I'm not trying to replace uh, you bringing your Bible and digging in, and um, you get it? So don't let me catch you without a Bible. (laughs) Also, if you find words that are capitalized in my um, slide that don't belong capitalized, the reason is it's capitalized in my digital Bible because they have taken it from the format, uh, especially it's in the Old Testament when there's Old Testament quotations. They've taken it from the format of the New King James, and I'm not going to take the time to do all that. Is that okay? Okay, good. So don't judge me if it's... Not absolutely correct. All right, so beginning with where Matthew does, with Jesus, uh, we want to ask the question, because Jesus' name is, is absolutely no mistake. So whatever is in a name, uh, we should ask that about Jesus. Now, you hear a lot of people talking about Jesus and what does it mean, and, and I'm not sure that the, the word Jesus, the name Jesus, actually means anything uh, until we start tracing it back to its, its Hebrew origins. And uh, so I kind of like to just do that for you today, because um, I, I like etymology, but not too much, because I want people to stay awake. But the name Jesus uh, comes from the Latin, and then the Latin, of course, comes from the Greek. Uh, both are very similar in uh, pronunciation, a slight different spelling. Uh, it's yesu, it's, yesus it's is uh, how they would say it. It's almost identical, as I said, between the two. Uh, I, I assume that however the Latins uh, said it, uh, that it was as close as they could get. It was an attempt uh, to pronounce uh, it as they could. And then the Greeks were doing their best to come up with a name that sounded as much as they could like the Hebrew name, okay? and, uh, which is Yeshua. That's the name that was given to him by the angel, which is actually a shortened version of the ancient Hebrew, uh, Yehoshua. How many of you guys have heard that? Okay, that Yeshua is actually abbreviated, and it's an abbreviation of the, the biblical figure from the book of Joshua, which is Yehoshua. Okay, Yehoshua. Let me just put it up here for you so you can see um, the genealogy of his name. And then, of course, when you go to o- other countries, it's still pronounced uh, Jesus. in some places. In Spanish, it's Jesus, um, whatever. Uh, but here's the roots there. So if we're going to talk about the 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 meaning of Jesus' name. We do have to go back to the Hebrew. And the reason we care is because nobody is named by an angel without their name being significant, right? And angels being, uh, you know, servants of God, communicating things to us. We know that the angel Gabriel uh, was told, make sure that you tell Joseph and Mary, I want that baby's name to be Yeshua. So there's some some purpose behind it. Uh, The text goes like this. Matthew 121, uh, and she, Mary, will bring forth a son, and you should call his name Jesus. That's Yahshua. And what does it say there? For or because. You're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name has everything to do with his mission. He was sent to save, to be a savior. Uh, The original Hebrew, uh, the ancient Hebrew is Yehoshua, it, it means Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. Well, that's important. But the later Hebrew, Yeshua, the emphasis is on the verb. It's Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Okay? So you can take a screenshot of that if you want. So, Savior is who he is, and save is what he was sent to do, and he, he did. So, in Jesus' name, there's a whole lot, isn't there? It's important. It's very important. It's of divine origin. God wasn't messing around, this baby will be called Yeshua. If you speak to, uh, especially a messianic Jew today, oftentimes they will refer to him according to the latter Hebrew, Yeshua. Uh, if they're really strict, they'll say uh, Yehoshua. Don't argue with them. Everybody's right, okay? Everybody's right. If you go to another country, guess what? They're gonna mess your name up, okay? Uh, when I went to um, Kenya, uh, you know, our missionary there is Aaron. Well, the Kenyans can't can't pronounce that R, so they say Arun, Arun. Well, they also can't say then Mary or Maria, so they say Malia. Well, it's the same with Hawaiians. The original Hawaiians couldn't pronounce the R. So when the missionaries went over there, you know, they were always talking about Mary, Maria, so they say Malia. My daughter's name is Malia. My wife is from Hawaii. And so... You know, pronunciation means nothing, but you just have to take it a step back to figure out uh, what the origin of names are. So, and that's kind of fun, anyway, for some of us. Yeah. Huh. Also, what is very important is that Jesus' name, Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Uh, it's that's also His name, by the way. Matthew is going to not come out and say it like John does, uh, but Jesus is going to demonstrate that he is Yahweh. Okay. And, and I, the more I interact with Christians and I teach on the deity of Christ, uh, the more I realize that some Christians are even kind of like, whoa, Jesus is Jehovah? Well, when you go through the, the Gospels, when you go through the writings of Paul and Peter, uh, the quotations that they're using of the Old Testament referring to Jesus, you go back to the Old Testament and that reference is talking about Jehovah. You can't separate the two. Jesus is Jehovah. Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness, for God was manifest in the flesh. Isn't that what we believe? Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, that, that the word was God. John 1.14, the word became flesh. Okay? Both Paul and Peter uh, use a phrase in the original language that uh, in the grammar there, there's no exceptions in, in, in Greek grammar anywhere, not in the Bible, not in uh, Greek outside the Bible. And the statement is, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not talking about our great God, Jehovah, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek grammar is is, is very strict there. It's called the Granville Sharp's Rule. Uh, it is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can't avoid the deity of Christ uh, at all. He is God Almighty. He's called God Almighty in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, that is God Almighty, became he, he, he assumed human flesh, He lived among us, He died for our sins, He rose again. Amen. Amen. Okay, that's historical Christian faith right there. And uh, so when we go through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to demonstrate His deity. There will be a place where He comes out and He just says it, and uh, that will get Him killed, by the way. Uh, it absolutely makes the high priest lose his mind. And... Uh, so anyway, Jesus is the God of Israel. He is the covenant God of Israel. I guess one last note, Stephen, uh, in giving his uh, witness before the Sanhedrin, he, uh, and, and this is why they they lose their mind too, but he says that Jesus is the voice speaking to Moses at the burning bush. I love that, the implication of all that. And, uh, so anyway, we'll study plenty about the deity of Christ as we go through all of this. And the intent of that is so that In our hearts and minds, we realize who we're dealing with Uh, when we talk about Christ. He is the Lord. So attached to Jesus' personal name, of course, is the word Christ. Uh, I think that a lot of people grow up thinking that Jesus' first name is Jesus and his last name is Christ. That's not really the way it is. Jesus is a proper name. Christ is a title or an office. Uh, That is extremely important. Um, It's it's, it's incorporated with his personal name to identify who exactly he is. Uh, we might even be able to say that as, as our theology develops in the New Testament, Jesus is his, his, his human designation, whereas Christ is his, his divine designation. Okay? And we know that Jesus is fully man and he's fully God. And as the ancient church fathers said, there's this hypostatic union. Two natures coming together in one person. Uh, the mystery of the incarnation Uh, Good stuff. Stuff I would love to talk more about. But most of you guys are like, let's not geek out on theology this morning. So um, the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, uh, which is the closest equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach. Now, they are not uh, perfect equivalents, but it's the best we could get in the Greek. Now, when we use these terms in Christianity, biblically and theologically, we mean the same thing. Now, back then, they had to clarify. Today, in the church, we should not have to clarify. We mean exactly the same thing. We can use them interchangeably without any problems. Uh, you'll notice this connection here between the words uh, uh, in, in John's gospel. Andrew finds his brother Simon. This is what he says. So He says, he first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. The Christ. You notice the word the in front of that. That is actually more proper to say Jesus, he is the Christ, He is the, the Messiah. Okay. The words <clears throat> mean anointed one, anointed one. And it meant that someone was uh, anointed with the Holy Spirit. Okay. In the scriptures, the anointing of the Holy Spirit could be could be symbolized by the holy anointing oil being poured over a person. Uh, now, depending on what circles of, uh, of evangelicalism you come from, you may have seen people anointed with oil for healing. How many of you guys have, have witnessed that? Okay, we do it here, but we don't, we've never done it like they do it in the Bible, because in the scriptures, they would take a horn of oil, okay, and they would literally dump it on a person, and, and David describes this in the anointing of Aaron, the high priest. It says that it ran down and was dripping off his beard and off his garments, so it was quite the ordeal for somebody to be anointed. It required a change of clothing, all right? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a mess. I imagine pouring that much oil on them. Uh, when you read the account of um, David being anointed in front of his brothers by Samuel, it was very dramatic in what happened. In fact, when Samuel, remember, came to the city, the men of the city said, Is everything okay? It just Samuel's presence there was a little unnerving to people as the prophet. And then, you know, he goes into Jesse's house, and uh, Jesse's like, well, surely it's it's my largest son or the best-looking son. And they run out of sons, and he says, this is it? And he goes, well, there's the kid out in the field. And he says, get him in here, and then right in front of his brothers. Okay. Very interesting, uh, very dramatic scene. The anointing uh, was always for the purpose of uh, inaugurating uh, or consecrating, we would say ad- ordaining or appointing commissioning uh, co- uh, coronating someone for a specific office for a specific task in the Bible uh, very commonly we see two offices that were anointed and one is more implied uh, the, uh, the, those that were anointed were the offices of the high priest okay, and the king and then, uh, by implication, we have the prophet being anointed. There's some examples, First King 19, 19, not with oil, though. Uh, you remember when uh, God tells Elijah, okay, I don't know what you're doing at this mountain, but you need to, like, go back. And so he's on his way back, and there's Elisha, and he's, he's plowing. And Elijah takes his mantle off, and he throws it onto Elisha. And there's this transfer of the office, at least the beginning of it, from Elijah to Elisha. And then in Isaiah 61, verse 1 is another one, and it's actually referring to Jesus. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he begins to describe his task that is going to be before him. So you have prophets, priests, and kings anointed for one of those offices. Now, in the Old Testament, one person would be appointed for one office. But when we come to the Messiah, he's anointed for all three. Okay, very special. Jesus was anointed as the high priest. Uh, this is demonstrated when he shed his blood, his own blood, for the sins of the nation. Now, the author of Hebrews describes all of that very in very interesting language. He says that Jesus is the high priest, but he is also the offering, and he is also the mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled as the, 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 the that you know covering the sins of the nation that were under it in the Ark of the Covenant so that God is not able to observe our transgressions. Jesus is the mercy seat. So he's, he's the high priest, he's the offering, he's the mercy seat, it's his blood. It's Very interesting stuff. So, uh, His anointing as prophet was demonstrated uh, as he spoke for God, as prophets do, real prophets. When he healed people, when he raised them from the dead, when he perceived the thoughts of his enemies... Uh, when he spoke with infallible foreknowledge of future events, and when his father said, this is my boy, pay attention to him, hear him. That's a prophet, okay? His anointing as king was demonstrated by his authority when he spoke. Uh, it was an- it's anticipated in his in teaching, and it's going to be fully realized when he returns and assumes the throne of David. I can't wait for the realization of all of that. So Jesus is the Christ. He is not uh, a Christ among many. Uh, he is the anointed of God. Okay? He is our great heart priest, he's our trusted prophet, and he is our sovereign king. Uh, it's interesting when you go through some of the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, you find hints of the mingling of offices uh, of, of a certain person yet future. And then when Messiah shows up on the scene, there we have it all. Christ fills all of those offices. Cool stuff for another time. Yeah. Matthew is faithful to bring uh, those three offices out in his gospel. Uh, also, something I think is important is that Jesus is the last anointed. He's the last anointed. Okay. We, have other, we have offices in the New Testament, uh, but I can't think of one uh, that is um, anointed. Okay. Not one. Uh, we use that as a figure of speech to say that the Spirit is using someone. I don't have a problem with that. I just don't see that language used by the apostles. And uh, as that's my general rule um, in my, my own understanding of Scripture. It's a general rule for us as Calvary Chapel is if, if we don't see it believed and practiced by the apostles, we, we're very cautious with it, okay? which uh, takes away a lot of tradition from what we do. Moving on here. Um, very importantly, uh, you notice there in the genealogy that Matthew traces Jesus' lineage back to David and to Abraham. He, he's called the son of David. He's called the son of Abraham. See, the Messiah's relationship to David and then uh, further back to Abraham is important to the Jew and very important to biblical prophecy for a number of reasons. Okay, and Because of the prophets of God, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to fulfill all of the promises of God that were given to David and Abraham. Okay, promises, covenants, uh, as we talked about when we went through the other uh, old, old, the old covenants, uh, not the old covenant, we did that as well, but the covenants of creation, uh, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, all of that, they are unconditional. They are irrevocable. They're unilateral. They're everlasting. So, as the Jew anticip- it was, you know, before the first century, it was he anticipating the coming of Messiah. What else was he anticipating? All of that stuff, the fulfillment of all of these prom- promises, the the, the the consummation of all of these covenants. So, as to God's promise to David, the prophets said that Messiah would assume the throne of David and restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, the anticipation of that. Uh, was reinforced, it was perpetuated by the angel Gabriel uh, when he spoke with Mary. This is what he said. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no End. There's a lot in that passage, isn't there? Okay, there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, <laughs> some, some important things to point out. The, the giving of the throne of David to Jesus, a throne that is earthly, not heavenly, it will require a sovereign act of God the Father. You got, there's so much rebellion on planet earth, we're not going to give it to him. There's going to be resistance, there's going to be a fight. It'll be futile, but we'll try anyway, okay, as a, as a race but it will require a sovereign act of God to do it. Uh, Jesus will, future tense, rule over the house of Jacob, the ethnic Israel. And once Jesus sits on David's throne, he will occupy that thing forever, forever, okay? He will not be succeeded. The dynasty of David leads to Messiah, and that's it, that's it. Uh, The book of Daniel tells us very clearly once he is seated done. Okay, will not be handed over to anybody else. It's great stuff. Uh, This uh, promise of the throne that one of David's descendants would sit on it, uh, on the throne forever, is first promise in 2 Samuel 7, and then it's perpetuated, it's clarified by the prophets, it's confirmed here by Gabriel. Also, we'll kind of circle back to some of this. Tracing Jesus back to Abraham looks back to God's promises to him. I want to talk about three. And mind you, as Jews would open the book of Matthew and they saw son of David, son of Abraham, guess what they're going to look for? Everything said to David, everything said to Abraham. They want all of that reinforced. Matthew will be faithful to do that as he's talking much about the kingdom and the king. Okay, so the first promise to Abraham is what we call the blessing of Abraham. The next one is the, concerning the land. And the third one is the redemption of ethnic Israel. So in Genesis 12, 3, God promised Abraham this. He said, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, not just your family, but all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So how would all of the families of the earth be blessed by Abraham? Well, God clarifies that to Abraham in Genesis 22, verses 17 through 18. It says, in your Seed, singular, as Paul picks up the argument in the New Testament. If it was plural, we'd have a problem here. But in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So in Abraham's seed, that is, by and because of one of his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This descendant is picked up by the prophets and clarified as the Messiah. Okay, he would bring this blessing to all the nations. How would he do that? It has everything to do with a tree carved into a cross. Just as Paul says to the Galatians, he says that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. So Jesus, he said, took the curse for us. Why? Galatians 3:14, that or so that the blessing of Abraham, quoting Genesis, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we, that is, the Jews including, because Paul was a Jew, might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the word Gentiles uh, refers to the word nations. Some of your Bibles actually translate that that word ethnos to nations. It speaks of all the non-Jewish people groups. So the coming of Messiah meant that the blessing of Abraham would finally go out to the nations, to the Gentiles. I told First Service, by the time the first century rolled around, uh, that doctrine was pushed aside uh, because there was so much hatred for the Gentile. Uh, they, the Talmuds, the ancient Jewish writings, uh, say that we Gentiles, uh, the only reason we exist is so that we could provide the fuel for hell. That was the Jews' view of the Gentile in the first century. But they could not deny Genesis chapter 12 that God, through Abraham, intended to bring a blessing to all the nations and he did that by sending his son which includes us. Jesus said other sheep I have which are not of this fold. That's us yeah. Excuse me the coming of Messiah also reassured Israel that God had not forgotten his promise to Abraham concerning uh, the land of Israel which would be given to his descendants. Genesis 15 through uh, through 21 excuse me According to the prophets, the land and the exact borders promised to Abraham would be secured by Messiah, Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. Jeremiah said that during the days of Messiah, who he calls the branch of righteousness, he says Judah will be saved and Israel would dwell safely. And then, because what was the problem by the time Jeremiah and Isaiah were around with the nation of Israel? They were divided, north and south. Well, the prophets say, that because of Messiah, the two will be mingled. Remember what he told Ezekiel? He said, take the stick of Ephraim, take the stick of Judah, representing the two kingdoms, and he says, put them together as one in your hand. And then he says, and I'm going to place one king over them. One king. There has not been a king over Judah and Israel since that time. I'm under the assumption that God is going to keep his promise. Amen? He'll do that uh, through the Messiah. Yeah. And finally, God promised God's promised to Abraham in Genesis 7, uh, 17, verse 7, that he would redeem Abraham's physical descendants and that he would be their God forever. Now, the ones that he redeems, of course, are the ones who repent and trust in Christ. But there is this promise concerning ethnic Israel. That is perpetuated and reinforced by Paul in Romans chapter 11. Um, In fact, the interesting thing, almost every time the throne promise is mentioned, that a descendant of David would sit on his throne forever, and nearly every time the land promise is repeated, so is the redemption of ethnic Israel. So the one promise starts here in Genesis 12, another one in 17, another one in 2 Samuel. But then as the prophets begin to talk about it, they merge all of them together. And then it's pushed, advanced forward in time as one promise. It's all together. And then every time you see it again, it's attached to Messiah. It's attached to to Christ. Very interesting stuff. Uh, You can see that in Isaiah 11, uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8, Jeremiah 33, 15 through 26. Again, that's Isaiah 11. It's Jeremiah 23, verse 5 through 8, and Jeremiah 33, 15 through 26. There's many more. I just don't have time for, for that right now all of these are tethered to Messiah to his coming, of course first and second coming okay? he's going to initiate the unconditional irrevocable promises of God to David and Abraham, let's move on to the genealogy as I said before uh, genealogies aren't always that fun, I am not going to exegete the etymology of all the names okay? Jesus is the important name uh, so yeah I'm going to hit the highlights. Uh, I hope that's okay with you. I know some of you really dig that stuff. I'm not into it this morning for my purposes here. Um, I told the the first service that if you want to have me over for a steak, I would love to talk to you about all the names and etymology and all that. So, yeah. So uh, some interesting details about it. Matthew's genealogy uh, begins with Abraham and then moves forward in time to Joseph. Well, Luke's genealogy uh, begins with Joseph uh, and then goes backward in time all the way to Adam. And I think there's good reason for that. Uh, Matthew clearly is trying to reach the Jew, and so rela- Jesus' relationships must primarily be to David and to Abraham. Luke, on the other hand, he is writing to a Gentile, of course, in hopes that that uh, gospel record would go out, but he's trying to minister to Gentiles, and he's trying to prove that within, the, the, in, within God's plan, Gentiles are included. So he goes all the way back to Adam, to mankind, to the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. So Luke is trying to reach the Gentiles. Matthew is trying to win his own people. It's, I think it's important observations to make. Um, what else? Um, Matthew's genealogy is clearly linked to Joseph. Now, that's trying to prove not that Jesus is a physical descendant of Joseph, but that Joseph is the legal father. Now, the Jews, in in terms of family relationship, uh, if it's not a physical relationship, a biological one, they're concerned about a legal one, a legal one. And that's what this genealogy uh, is, is all about. When you read Matthew's gospel and the other ones, no one is trying to hide that Joseph is the stepfather. No one's trying to hide that. No one's trying to slip it into the genealogy or doctor it up. It's all transparent, okay? It's all disclosed there. Jesus was adopted by Joseph. Uh, Luke's genealogy on the other end, it appears to be linked to Joseph, but there's plenty of evidence inside the Bible. There's also evidence outside the Bible that demonstrates that that's probably Mary's genealogy, which is an actual biological relationship. Uh, Something that I uh, have found recently of late, uh, it says that uh, that Joseph's father is Heli. That's not Joseph's dad. It says that in Luke. Okay, Um, but women typically weren't in genealogies. They weren't used in legal documents among the Jews. Um, But what I find interesting is the Jews were so meticulous in their record keeping. Is that the Jewish Talmud says that Mary's father was Heli. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That they would record that for us. So thanks. Appreciate that. Also, uh, a serious difference between Matthew and Luke's genealogy. Um, well, I'll, I'll come back maybe that in a minute. Um, let me come back to Matthew's stuff here. Something we should look at. How many of you guys have read uh, through Matthew's genealogy and then in studying the names you got hung up on some of the people? How many of you don't care? Okay, all right, well, I want to point this out. It is important. Uh, Jeconiah, the son of Josiah, uh, potentially poses a problem to any connection to the throne. Okay, at least for Joseph, not for Jesus, because Jesus is not directly related to him. Jeconiah is another name for Jehoiakim. And in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, God places a curse on Jehoiakim, on Jeconiah, and says that none of his children would be permitted to sit on the throne of David. Well, why include him in the genealogy then? So people have stumbled on this, uh, but then they miss something else uh, later on. They stumble because uh, Shelchel is mentioned, and that is his son, okay, in verse 12. So they say, well, that's a big problem, okay? So what of the curse? Well, the God who pronounces a curse can always remove a curse. And when we come to... uh, Haggai chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, God chooses Zerubbabel, the grandson, who is supposed to be cursed as well. Zerubbabel as David's, the Davidic representative. That's very interesting. And we know that he's referring back to Jeremiah 22 because he says, even if Jeconiah or Jehoiakim was my signet ring, he says, I'd cast him off. But then, when speaking of Zerubbabel, he says, he is my signet ring. Very interesting, huh? So a lot of scholars say, well, no, this is uh, uh, Zerubbabel being brought out of the curse and then becoming the Davidic representative, as Haggai seems to be saying. But Jesus has no physical relationship there. Um, Also, when we as Westerners read um, any, any text at all, we have a way of reading our culture, our thoughts and stuff back into that. We've talked about that. But when we read genealogies, we have, a, uh, we have these requirements that we think should be in there that meant absolutely nothing to the Middle Eastern person. Okay? So something that concerns Westerners about genealogies, they're like, there's gaps in it. There's, what do we do? What do we do about the gap? Okay, there's names missing. Uh, and so that's true. There are, there are names not recorded in Matthew's genealogy. But gaps do not concern the Eastern mind. Uh, They're only interested in the key names. Gaps could be filled in later. You understand? Uh, Westerners also stumble on some of the language in Eastern genealogies. Many times it says that so-and-so begot so-and-so when actually so-and-so was the grandson or the great-grandson. And Like, that's not their son. What do we do? Well, in in, in the, the Hebrew peoples, they called the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, great the son of, of that person. Okay, It happens all the time, not just among the Jews, but with the surrounding nations. Okay, It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Those from the East would say, so what? Every grandson comes from his grandfather, right? So deal with it. <laughs> you came from your grandfather too, just like the Jews did. It's funny how Westerners will complain about not having all the fine details in between, which if they were provided, we would have a much longer genealogy. And then Westerners would complain about the longer genealogy and want an abbreviation. And you know what we'd get in the end? What we have in the text. okay? And and we'd finally, hopefully, just settle with it. So now, um, some concluding statements. Let me go to verse 17, and then I'm actually going to address four names that are in the genealogy. But I want to get verse 17 uh, past me real quick. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity of Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So three groups of 14 generations listed in Jesus' uh, genealogy. Why? Why not 20? Why not some other number? Um, I don't know. I have no idea why Matthew did that. I don't know if it had something to do with meeting a, what was a typical legal ledger. Uh, I don't know. There's all kinds of theories out there uh, for what it was. Some people say that it, it's according to Hebrew uh, numerology uh, you know David's name is 14 and, and stuff like that. So what I've always, when I look at all of these theories I go let's say that some of you are right. What difference does it make in some of these interpretations? So if it's a legal ledger if it had to meet some kind of requirement back then, uh, that would probably be the best thing. As far as th- uh, the other guesses, I, I just don't care. Uh, let's just be happy with a mystery. Is that okay? All right. So to wrap this up, I want to look back at what is a very important detail within the genealogy. It's very significant. One of the most astounding things found in the record is the inclusion of four women. There's five women in it because... Mary's mentioned, but she's not in the actual genealogy, but there's four women. And under the circumstances, this would not have been included in this sort of legal document, would not have been. And I like this when we come to the scriptures, when it's God who is directly inspiring something, not just telling us the history of something, but he's, he's dictating what is being written, is that he will often violate, disregard customs and cultural norms, and he'll do it for his own purposes. Okay? Now when we look at the life of Jesus and his interaction with uh, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because he will not be subject to any of those norms, life gets very interesting. And uh, that's why I just love the interactions that Jesus has with those men. He just would not, uh, if things were going to get in the way of his vision for humanity, he would violate all kinds of funny little traditional rules and stuff. Anyway... Women in the genealogy here not normal, and not not only is the presence of women unusual, the women listed are not what you'd expect if you were trying to trace the lineage of the most important person in the world, especially if there was any moral ramifications. Okay, yeah, this proves that God is not ashamed to just tell the truth about history. That's why He mentions the men as well. Anyway, here are the names. We have Tamar in verse three. She comes. Out of the story from Genesis 38, Rahab, she's in verse 5. The historical narrative, Joshua 2, Ruth uh, is in verse 5. It's from Ruth chapter 1, verse 4 in Bathsheba, verse 6, 2 Samuel 11. Now, there's some context to these, these women. Uh, Tamar, uh, she was a pagan, and she was given to, originally, to the son of Judah. And God didn't like Judah. He was absolutely wicked. So God dispatched him. That's God killed him. Okay? And then she was, according to the custom, given to the younger brother. Well, that didn't go well either, so God dispatched him as well. And then the last, the third brother, he was just too young. And so Judah said, go back to your father and remain there as a widow. But then the younger brother grew up, and he was old enough to be married, and Judah was like, not going to give his last son to the woman who was connected to the death of his other two sons. So Tamar, what she did was she disguised herself as a ritual prostitute, a priestess, so that Judah would engage with her sexually. It's a terrible story. And then that, the child that comes from that engagement is in Jesus' genealogy. Yeah. And then Rahab. Now, Rahab is a special case because Rahab was a Canaanite pagan. Canaanites were not supposed to be incorporated into Israel at all. You want to talk about exceptions to the rule, it's Rahab. But not just that. She wasn't just a Canaanite. She was a professional prostitute. She's the one that hid the spies as they were going into Jericho. She converted later to Judaism, married a Hebrew, and then their child is in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth, now I'm not going to say anything bad about Ruth, but Ruth was formerly a pagan. She was from Moab. She was a Moabitess. She was converted to the God of Israel through her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then we have the most romantic story in all of history. And she's the great-great-great-great-grandmother of David. It's amazing. And then Bathsheba, possibly a former pagan. Her husband was a Hittite, Uriah. She may have been. I don't know. She was a convert, apparently, to Judaism. So in the genealogy of Jesus, we have two prostitutes, at least three pagans, and one woman that liked to bathe on her roof in front of all of Israel. Uh, We've got problems, okay? (laughs) But why did Matthew include their names? Why would he do that? Well, as Matthew sat down to record this from the family records that he had acquired, I can just see him looking back on the character of Jesus and the nature of his ministry and thinking, you know, all of this, every ounce of this is about redemption. It's all about redemption. How can I communicate that from the very start? I got an idea. I'm just going to be completely transparent about all of this, and I'm going to slip in some of the most questionable people in Jesus' genealogy. And perhaps he recalled the experience of Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute who was demonized, but she was later delivered from them, and then she was redeemed by Jesus. It's very interesting. I know of a common, Bible commentator who said that Um, she could not have been a prostitute because Jesus would never let a prostitute touch him. I thought, have you read the Gospels? (laughs) I can assure you that Mary was not opposed to Matthew, including the names of Tamar and Rahab, not to make her feel better about herself, but as a reminder that nothing, nothing is beyond the reach of God's redeeming grace. Isn't that great? I think it's amazing. And if you're going to record a historical narrative about God's redeeming grace, those women have to be in there. They have to be. Mary's experience demonstrates that Satan is no match for God's grace, and that there's no depth of moral depravity that is out of God's reach. It's so amazing. So I guess I have two things to say about that. The first one is, um, if, if you are like that commentator that thinks that Jesus would not let a prostitute weep over his feet and wash them. Uh, You have missed God's grace for yourself, for one. You're not getting it, okay? And the other one is this. If you have a questionable past, as, as many do here, the gospel of Jesus is for you. It's for you. He can reach you. He can redeem you. And nobody could say that perhaps, as well as the apostle Paul, who had a very shameful past, And he said one time that God, he uses me as a pattern so that other people can look upon me and the things that I've done and know that they too can be redeemed. They can be scraped off the bottom of the barrel and then placed among his saints. But he said this, and just a quick review on Paul's life. uh, Paul would, he was commissioned by the Sanhedrin to go and capture Christians that were Jewish. And what he would do is he would have some of them Executed. Others he would torture until they blaspheme the name of Christ. Others he imprisoned. Paul says, I became a madman over this whole issue of Jews uh, converting to Jesus of Nazareth. He said, drove me absolutely crazy. And we know about his conversion, but he said this most definitely, including himself. He says, For when we were still without strength, and there he's talking about moral and spiritual strength. He says, in due time or at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Redemption. Anybody that repents and comes to Christ by faith, they're justified, they're sanctified, they're washed, as Paul says. Let's, let's stand up and pray. Who's coming to pizza afterwards? All right, so if you're new and you didn't hear the announcement, um, we are serving pizza for those that have been here for a year or less, just so that you guys can get to know the elders and, uh, and the pastors. If you sneak in, we probably won't persecute you. But no guarantee. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the history of redemption. We thank you that all of it has been funneled to the person of your son. And that when we were at our absolute worst, you gave us your best. Oh, what an astounding reality. That we who deserve judgment, you sent your son to be judged in our place. Lord, I, I just pray that we would capture your heart, Lord, in terms of redemption. And that we would see the Rahabs. Uh, we, would see, we would see the Jeconiahs. We would see those that are apart from you. And we would have compassion as you did. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this, Lord, you just inspire us to walk more worthy of you. Lord, thank you for my church family. Just encourage them and help them to be light wherever they go. In Jesus' name, amen.